I receive that word. Lord, use the plain and very ordinary <laughs> and unrounded. It's better than being rounded, I suppose. <laughs> um, Dan, can you, I've asked Dan to actually um, do like a little summary with power from the Lord. Um, because we felt last week, as we ended the service, there was this sense of God really working in our lives and conviction and the Holy Spirit and what I'm wanting to say. And Lucas got up after and said, hey, listen, as an eldership, we don't want to leave this. We want to discuss it. We want to come back to this. And so this morning, we kind of want to carry on with what we feel the Lord is saying and doing. But some of us weren't here. We overslept that morning. It's okay. That's why we've got Dan giving us a summary. Now, it's just a recap because I want us to posture our hearts this morning of like, Lord, I want to hear you. Lord, I want to be like you. I want to change. Do you want to be like Jesus? I desperately want to be like Jesus because I don't like being like me. Maybe it's just me. Maybe we're all amazing. But there's stuff inside of me that I hate. There's things that I find myself doing and walking into and habits and behaviors and, and things in my life that I desperately actually don't want to be like. I want to be like Jesus. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. So Lord Jesus, would you come by your anointing? Holy Spirit, you inspire and bring life to words. Would you come and speak to us this morning? Amen. Thanks, Dan, number two. So, so, yeah, so Dan asked me just to give a quick uh, 40 minutes into five. Um, so I, I'd just like to pick out some of the, the key things that I think um, God's Spirit was saying last week. Um, last week I was speaking about how God has a, a plan for every single one of us um, for complete and total freedom, restoration in every aspect of our lives, but how sometimes... We can miss it. For a long, long time in our walks, we can miss it because even though we might know what we struggle with, we don't know why we're struggling with it. And I spoke about five highs. I just want to recap those very quickly. So the five highs. Firstly, we spoke about high hopes. We saw about how the Israelites escaped from Egypt and set out for the promised land um, full of high hopes and a longing to be near God, and about how that was a picture of every single one of us in our walk with Jesus. You know, how when we were first saved, we had all these high hopes. We had our, our hearts dedicated to God. Um, we came to Jesus with messed up lives, and we knew that, but we were determined to put it all right, every aspect of our life, to be holy for our for our Savior. But then we spoke about high places. See, when the Israelites arrived in the Promised Land, they were told to destroy not only the foreign gods and the idols, but also the high places where those things were worshipped. The altars, the pagan altars where the people would go to offer that worship. And uh, even the names of the places themselves were to be changed so that there was no way that the Israelites could have that hook to go back to those places. And we saw that even though the Israelites did start by smashing up the idols, they didn't give up the high places. 
Uh, and they became a stumbling block to the Israelites. They kept going back to those places time and time again. The gods might have been different, but they kept going back to those same high places. And we looked about how that is like us in so many ways, because we sometimes try to deal with the outward sin, the expression of the sin. And God does call us to deal with sin, so that's good. You know, it could be Smoking, drinking, lying, gossip, you know, you name it. Any outward sin, we should deal with it. But often, we don't let God deal with the inward brokenness that takes us to, the, to do those things. And if we don't fix the underlying brokenness, then when we deal with one outward sin, we often just replace it with another. There's a difference between having control over our sinful behaviors and having victory in the brokenness to actually heal us so we don't even go to those sinful behaviors. Thirdly, we looked at high horses. Uh, we touched on a few examples of outward sin. Um, it wasn't an exhaustive list, but we just chose a couple as illustrations. And we started to try and understand about how underlying brokenness Underlying things that aren't surrendered to God can take us to the things that are the outward sins. And we spoke about how those things can be painful. They can even be offensive to our minds. Cousin Eddie can start throwing beef stroganoff. But if we're truly open to God working in us, there's no place for getting on our high horses. We have to be humble enough to submit ourselves to God and to each other to allow him to work a full restoration. Fourthly, we looked at high time. Um, the only thing that can get in the way of God's plan and purpose for us is ourselves and our resistance to God. We saw how God sent many prophets to the Israelites to warn them, come back to us, take down these high places, destroy those things, come back to God, worship only him. But they didn't listen, and they didn't listen, and they didn't listen, and eventually, God sent the entire Israelite nation into exile for their own good, to bring them to their senses, which is what he does with us. He sends us warnings by his spirit directly and through friends and through family, and it's to bring us back to him, to surrender to him. It's to get our attention. It's high time we paid attention to his warnings. Because if we don't, then God will often send us into a time of testing, a wilderness, an exile. It's for our good. It's to bring us to our senses. But it's often a place of pain and tears. So it's better to listen to him when he warns us. So he doesn't have to teach us the hard way when it gets that far. Fifthly, high calling. If we know Jesus, then God's Spirit is alive in us, convicting us, highlighting things both in us and things in others which we need to bring to them so iron can sharpen iron. Every single one of us here has a high calling, something that God has purpose for us and planned for us. God wants to see it fulfilled. So if we truly love each other, if we truly love each other, we'll be prepared to risk awkwardness, even prepared to risk friendships. 
we'd be prepared to risk our own sense of well-being and comfort to speak the truth in grace to each other so that we can all grow to be more like Jesus. And lastly, we recognize that dealing with these patterns of sin and brokenness, it starts with knowing Jesus, having his spirit within us. So we invited everyone last week, everyone that hadn't met Jesus yet, to start on the amazing journey with Jesus. And this morning, as I hand back to Dan, so that he can share with us some encouragement and some vision for how we do this, I just want to remind you, last week, if you didn't know Jesus, we invited you to meet him. This morning, as I hand back to Dan, that invitation is still open. On Friday morning, I, as I woke up, I had this like, literally as I woke up, I haven't experienced it before, maybe the more dreamy among us will experience it, but as I woke up, I had this like, it was definitely God because it wasn't quite a scripture, it was kind of like a bit of a scripture mixed with a bit of Lord of the Rings, like in a saying as I woke up, and as I woke up, I felt, I felt inside of me this yearning of like, where does my help come from? And I felt the Lord say to me, look to the hills, like Gandalf, you know, look to the hills. <laughs> so it was a bit of scripture in Lord of the Rings, hence I know it was God. Um, but as I woke up, I had this sense of like, God, where does, where does my help come from? Where does that ability to walk with you today, where does, where does any of it come from? And I felt like the Lord saying, your ability to even live and walk and have your being, look to me. I am the one who sustains you. I am the one who called you. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who keeps you, and I'm the one who brings it to completion. And so as much as it's, it's there's this incredible emphasis that Dan left us where we can be introspective and look at things in our life. It's like Joey and I were chatting, and he was saying, there comes a point when, you, when we look at all these things in our life, the only thing we have to do from that point is we get overwhelmed, and the only thing you can do is look to the Lord. Who is my help? Where does my help come from? It's from the Lord. And so one of the things, there is often obstacles to where we find ourselves. So what happens is when you initially get saved or when you, when you initially come to know Jesus, there's just this pure, unadulterated passion that wants to follow Jesus and you just are willing to do anything. And then slowly, because we live in an antithesis and a secular world, a world that is in opposition to the truth, we slowly find that your temperature starts to go more from boiling to lukewarm, and then you have to put it back on the fire and get boiling again, and then it goes. And so you consistently are fighting this bend. And one of the things that happens is your very view of certain things of God can get changed. And so I would say this. A lot of us believe in word, certain things that we do not live at, and that would mean you don't actually believe it. You've learned about it. And so if I had to throw this broad statement in the church, for example, God is not tolerant, we would be like, I believe that. 
I believe that God doesn't tolerate sin. I believe that God is a holy God who is set apart and he's called the people to be set apart and to look like him and to be holy. But if I asked you how did that affect the way you live, I think we would find that actually maybe our lifestyle says that we do believe God tolerates certain things because of how we've lived with him in our lives for years without addressing them. But our, our voice would say, I believe. And so even our belief of God can get twisted based on the world that we live in. And this is an angle that I feel that sometimes, and it's about the tolerance of God, where we actually where we become lukewarm, it affects the way that we walk with the Lord. And like Dan said, eventually you find yourself in the promised land with the old high places that the Lord had asked you to take down and destroy, you're living with them. And so one of these things is there is this thing called new tolerance in the world. It's, this is a secular idea, and it's gone from the ability to believe in the existence that we can have a differing view to the fact that if Donna and I don't agree, then I'm not tolerant anymore. And so now to tolerate doesn't only mean the fact that tolerance actually means that Donna can have a view and I won't react. I will actually endure her viewpoint. But nowadays it's changed that if you don't agree with what I believe, then you're intolerant. And so they say that the biggest opposition to the gospel when they walk around and interview people, more probably in the West or more in Cape Town towards town, what is the biggest opposition to believing in God is people say that he's intolerant. And he's not accepting of everybody and their lifestyle and what, who they are. And he's very, and so what happens is the church is desperately trying to reach outward. So we wouldn't want to combat that. And so in the church, we slowly start to change things that are black and white. And things that God doesn't tolerate and truth and lies. And we start to tolerate things and we start to allow gray where there's black and white. And before you know it, you're actually preaching a God who tolerates certain things that actually he doesn't. And you can see this not by looking next to you, because that's often where we look most to judge. Normally it's your spouse, the person next to you. But when you look inward, when you look inward, you start to see actually what do I believe about God and His holiness as I reflect it in my life? Not as he or she reflects it because, you know, oh, I can tell you exactly what Sam believes because I live with her. But actually, there's something of an internal look that we need to take. You see, the, the, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis. And he said, the ancient man approached God. As the accused person approaches a judge. But the modern man has reversed the roles. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God can explain why there's difficult petrol prices and the economy has gone to hell and all the bad things that are breaking, if God can explain all the pain and suffering, I'm actually a good judge. I might even acquit him. And allow him to call himself good, as long as I can account for it. And there's been this massive shift of where God is the judge and man is in the dock. I love cars. Um, 
doesn't, that normally means, when somebody says that, it normally means, I have a history of living with broken cars. That's basically what it means. And um, in the process, I've learned to work on cars. My wife absolutely hates that. To the point that a friend of mine yesterday, he's just got his car back, and he phoned me in a panic in the morning saying, like, I just got it back and it's broken. Can you come and help me? And I realized, okay, this is. But so in my pursuit of loving cars, I found this excellent illustration that I want to. So ladies, you can bear with me on motor oil. It's probably similar to hair oil. I don't know. But um, it's, a, it's, it's a little thing that I want to show you to, to understand the idea of when we take thesis, God's word is the truth, and when we take secular antithesis and we combine them together, we, we get synthesis. We get a man-made product. And what happens is with oil in cars, they've realized that if you don't put oil in your car, if you've recently had a car break, I can guarantee it's got something along these lines to be the problem. But if you don't change the oil regularly in your car, the engine will eventually seize and your car will not lubricate as it should. I'm giving you the high level and it will break down. But now what they've realized is oil actually doesn't do as good a job as we need. So you get synthetic oil. And what happens is you have these incredibly f amazing scientists who sit in labs and they add man-made particles like carbons and all these different kinds of things. They add them to the oil so that the oil in the, so that the engine can tolerate more heat. So normally if you use a normal mineral oil, it doesn't have a very good heat range. It's got a very low band. I hope you're starting to tie the things together, that actually the purer the oil, the less tolerance for extreme heat there is, but the more man-made things you start to put in, you start to develop this wider and wider tolerance for heat range for the engine to work in. And as a result, do you know that most modern cars, because of running turbos and all these difficult things, can only run on synthetic oil? And do you know that it can get to that point in your life as a believer where you slowly add and add and add and add to things that God has spoken or said or you just, you know, God doesn't mind this because I've been doing it for five years and he hasn't kind of exposed it or taken me out. So he must be okay with it. Or because when we say we come to worship, I can stand and participate and I don't get struck by a lightning bolt and my job doesn't fall apart and I could still hear him. So he must be okay with it. And the more we dilute and change this oil, eventually we land up with something where when you read the Bible, it doesn't even correspond because this is the original. And he's not tolerant at all. And that's why when he addressed Israel, I said to them, go and destroy all of those places. But what happens is when you view God with this type of lens and you start to Live out based on your life experience as opposed to what you see in the Bible as the truth. You start to land up with a synthetic form of Christianity. That mafia is at the end of time when that synthetic form of Christianity comes before the Lord. Well, how do you think he will treat that? Often, this is in response to the secular, to culture, to the world around us. Most of the time. 
There's two things that you're gonna struggle to find in the Bible. The one is a tolerant God, and the other is unicorns. <laughs> My daughter is very upset by the latter, and we're all upset by the former. Because he is a holy God who has set apart, and he has called a holy people to be set apart. Asking a Christian to approve of what God disapproves is the same as asking a daughter to wind up and slap her father in the face in the name of being loved by others. It's a quote from a... It's the illustration of if you... Asking God to be tolerant, if, if, if you want to accept that belief of him, you have to actually reject him. And so what changes? Does he change or do we change? Do we, do we come before him and make the shift or do we expect God to make the shift? Because often we actually live at the standoff, which is where well, God's not moving and I'm not moving. So we live in the Christian phrase for a standoff with God. I'm living in a desert season. You know, God's just gone quiet on me. And obviously be to test me. It couldn't be that there's something in my life because it's not that he's an amazing, incredible God who through our time and history has made every effort to be in relationship and to be close to us, that he did it all. It's not that, you know, he must definitely be withdrawing himself instead of the fact that there are things in my life that are preventing me from getting any closer to him. And we even can come up for prayer and post it on our groups and like, hey guys, going through a real desert season at the moment. Can you just lift my arms up? Can you, can you help me? I'm just, I'm not hearing God at the moment. He's, he's withdrawn himself to test me. I think so often it's because there's things in our lives that we've begun to tolerate that he can't. And it's not even that he withdraws himself. It's that he is a holy and separate God who you can no longer approach and come close to. And you want to. Exodus 34 verse 67. There is hope, I promise. It's coming. But you, we have to first realize that actually when you have a warped view of God, you start to allow high places. You start to allow things in your life that last week, there was this massive, the spirit fell last week in a way where we all had conviction of our, of our lives. And do you know what? I can guarantee if you came forward and repented, none of that stuff appeared overnight. It had built up over time. And then the Holy Spirit shows it to you, and it's at that moment you respond. Do you go towards him, or do you walk away from him? Because this is how he is. Exodus 34, verse 67. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out. Uh, yeah, he passed in front of Moses and said, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, the merciful and gracious God. I'm slow to anger and rich in unfailing love and faithfulness. God is not tolerant. He is so much better. He's patient. He's kind. He's gracious. He's faithful. 
To expect God to rather tolerate my life is a downgrade on him being holy, yet patient and gracious and kind. If God were merely tolerant, if those things in our life, if he could just tolerate them, do you know what? Jesus would not have had to die. If there was another way, I guarantee you, he would have gone that route. But there was no other way. There is no other way. That's why Jesus had to come and live a life and set an example and go to the cross and die and be raised again and ascend because there was no other way. God were merely tolerant or he could tolerate these things and our lives and the baggage and the things that we believe but don't say. These things are often deep character flaws, things that we live with. You walk out of this and you snap at people or you have an anger, you have a, you have a hot streak at home with your family or you, you have a certain entertainment of coarse joking and thing, you have a lifestyle that's different and and then you come before the Lord and if God could tolerate these things, he would not be holy and we would not be unholy. There would be no failure on our part that needs fixing, but in comparison, he is holy and therefore what we do in our lives and who we are requires grace and mercy and kindness. And it requires a high view of God that affects the way that we live. Harsh statement, but I am, I have no interest in Christianity that's spoken and not lived out. I have no desire for it. Which means, how often we don't say lies, we sing them. Oh, I lift my hands, I come to worship you, you alone are good. Oh, I come to worship you, lift my hands, you are good. It's just like, it's just words. Giving you my heart, I love you, Lord. And, so, and it's matched with this tone. Giving you my heart, I love you. There is something of a holy God that we serve who is so separate, who is like no one else and nothing else and cannot be diluted and boxed and framed with anyone else. And he's looking for a bride that is pure and spotless and without blemish and he's coming back for her. And the world that we live in would have you live this belief and this lie that he's not coming back. Because how would you know? Because you wouldn't be living like he's coming back. Don't, I'm talking to me, please, I'm not pointing fingers. Don't let us be those saying we believe Jesus is coming if we don't live like it every single day. If you did believe he is coming, you would live differently tomorrow. 
You would handle your finances differently. You would treat your children differently. You would interact with other saints differently. I deeply love Lucas. He's a very good friend of mine. He's been there, many people can say this, but he has been there for me like, like I can't explain to you the lens that man has gone to, to be willing to sit in a hole with me. And I realized this week, it's a minor heart attack and we're so grateful for what the Lord did. But like that, it could have been gone. And we saw him on Friday night. And he's saying to us, I'm just so grateful. Because we can have all these plans, we can have all these ideas for our life and what we'll do for the Lord. And you know, Lord, one day when, when this changes, then I'll be like that. You know, all that needs to happen is a few things in my life need to line up and then I'll be able to give you my best. Then I'll be more front-footed or then I'll X, Y, Z. I just need you to. But if you actually believe that he's coming back, you'll live differently now. You'll live radically now. I saw that in his eyes when he spoke to us on Friday. Lucas, not the Lord, Lucas. The Lord in Lucas. He's also very cute because he's completely shaved like a little chicken. But I saw something in his eyes of like, there is a wake-up call for all of us. That's why when the Holy Spirit brought this conviction on us last week about things in our life that we keep circling back to, how do we deal with them? Newsflash, it starts with this. How do you view God determines how zealously you are able to deal with this. Because if you don't have a high view of him, you don't have to radically deal with your life. God shows us patience. This morning, God, so there are some of us here sitting on our 35th million trial for falling in the same area again and again and again and again and again. And I'm including myself all the time where we, we find ourselves habitually, even the things you might have come forward to and repented of last week, you've fallen back into this week. God is not patient because it's acceptable. He's patient because we're stubborn. He's patient because he's loving. He's patient because he's kind. I constantly live in my life with an imposter syndrome because, because I felt like I've, I've messed up to such a degree in my life. How could you, how could you still have a part for me? How could you still make a way for me? Why would you still want to use me? When you see yourself through that lens, when it comes to, and I'm not, it's not a preacher on worship, but when it comes to worship, when it comes to interacting with Him, when, when I see those words, this is amazing grace, I want to cry every single time because I know who I am. And I know that if grace wasn't amazing, there would be no hope for me. Sure, I can't even read through these glasses. (laughs) 
2 Peter 3 verse 9 uh, from the NIV. It's just verse 9. Sorry, I did give you the whole first bit, but I'm just going to read verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Thanks, Nick. The tissue guy. The Lord is slow and Nick is loving. (laughs) The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. What is his promise? That he is coming back for us. The world would have you believe that he's not coming back. Build your life. Build this empire. Put something away. Reserve some for yourself. Don't expend too much. Don't Commit to too much. Live a life well within your own little means. and Don't live radically. Don't pour yourself out as a drink offering. As if something radical could happen tomorrow. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient. Why is he patient? Because he dearly loves you. Because if he had to come now, there are some of us that would perish. The scripture is saying that. That there are some of us who the only, it's in his patience that he holds himself back because if he comes back, there's going to be so many who wouldn't. Where would you fall? This is not meant to be a fire and brimstone. This is meant to be an encouragement. God is patient with us because he seeks to change us, because he loves us. Do you know, I've read this, I'm going to read it to you. It's a small little excerpt that that somebody wrote describing how much love it would have taken just for a human being. Forget the Son of God. How much it would have taken for Jesus to just love those that he lived with. Not even us who would reject him and not believe in him and turn our back. No, no, no. It's this. The town is filled with awful, uncorroborated accusations. Like, this man's mom must have slept with so many men that nobody even knows who Jesus' dad is. He's a liar. He's from a small backwater town. He's uneducated. His dad's a blue-collar nobody who's clearly a dope because he believes his wife's crazy story about getting pregnant while still being a virgin. Then Jesus grew up. And the religious people accuse him of being an alcoholic who performs miraculous works by the power of the devil. Throughout his life, everybody gets a crack. But Jesus never quit. He never stops loving. Ephesians 4 verse 2. When you start to believe that he is like this, it starts to affect how you live, how you are towards others, what your life looks like. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults. Why? Because of your love. Not because of your great love, but because of the love that you've received. Now, with the same love, you must love others.
close to landing. I want to point us to Lucas's famous question from last week. What do we do now? What do I do with all of this? How do I, how do I fix it? How do I make myself into what he requires? How do I get over the things that keep tripping me up? And it's what we started with. No, no, no. It's he who saved you, and it's he who keeps you. It doesn't just require faith to get saved. It requires faith to believe that God will consistently change you to become like him. God does the work. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. So all of us have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. If, you, if you've seen God, if you've given your life to him, it's talking to you as believers. And the Lord who is the spirit, who? Does it say? And us who are together as a church make ourselves more and more like him. No. And the Lord who is the spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. That the same desperation and the same faith that required in your life to believe that God could forgive you. I don't know about you, I, I'd say this often because it's my story, but when I gave my life to the Lord, the, the reason I gave my life to the Lord is I felt like I had completely Basically, growing up, I was a PK, and every time a prophet or anyone would come to the church, they would prophesy over me and say, young man, God wants you to change nations. Young man, God's going to use you to be an apostle. Young man, da, 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 da. This was said all over me all my life, and I felt like I didn't have a say in the matter. So as a teenager, I decided that I, I was the worst teenager in the world, my opinion, and probably my mother's. And I wanted to do everything to disqualify myself from that type of calling. And so I lived a life that if actually, that if this stuff comes out, if I can live this way, if I can live in sin and fighting and all this stuff, then surely I can't, then I get a say in my destiny. When I was about 18, turning 19, I'd had a terrible incident with a friend of mine that night before. I saw someone nearly get killed, and I felt the Lord tell me, I can forgive you. And I, I didn't believe he could. I was like, there's no ways. I've done, I've done everything to discredit myself. And I felt this thing inside of me. I can forgive you. And at that moment, I was like, okay, if you can forgive me, I'll put my faith in you. I will believe you. I will believe that you can forgive me, and I will live my life like you have forgiven me. And do you know that the only assurance that we have that at the end of our life we will be forgiven right now is faith. That when you gave your life to Jesus and you repented of everything in your life, when you, when you said, God, I want to repent of my sin, the only assurance you have that at the end of your life, he's not going to say, Joey, actually, I hold it against you. The only thing that you live with right now that prevents that from being a reality in your mind is faith. It's faith that what he said is true. 
Because actually as sinners, we do have a consequence that we're deserving of. And it's not eternity with him. One Thessalonians 5 verse 23. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. Who makes you holy? Notice how he's referred to as the God of peace. He's the one who brings the peace. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. 